For those who fish, this is the Drake Cast, a voice for fly fishing culture and conservation. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. It could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. This episode of the Drake Cast is made possible by the folks at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. I started out the way everybody should. I worked in a fly shop when I was 22 years old. I was at the bottom of the totem pole, took orders, stocked shelves, and gradually worked myself up. This week's featured Yellow Dog ambassador is Jeff Courier. You know, I became more more substantial in the fly shop, started doing fly casting instruction, then full day schools, then became a guide, became an artist, became a pretty good writer. Yellow Dog hires pros like Jeff to scour the seven seas for the best, most productive fisheries on the planet. Now, uh, I write my blog, you know, work for some companies, also host some trips for Yellow Dog, so hopefully someday you'll be on a trip with me. We'll go somewhere really cool. To book your trip with Jeff, go online at yellowdogflyfishing.com. We're also sponsored by Scott Fly Rods. I got my first Scott Fly Rod before I went to Turks and Caicos to do bone fishing. This is my buddy Ben. Yeah, I picked up a 9-foot nine 9 weight. It was incredible. I was able to spend pretty much the majority of the day out there casting and not get tired. Uh, I've also used this rod in Alaska for uh, silver salmon fishing. The nine weight held up really well against some of these really big 20 plus pound fish. And Ben liked his Scott fly rod so much that he invested in a couple more of them. It's a uh, six weight, nine foot for trout fishing and that's the nicest casting rod that I have by far. They're definitely high quality, they feel good. and. If you break one, they'll fix it. To start your very own love affair with a handcrafted fly rod, swing on down to your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. Okay, folks, welcome back to the Drake Cast. This week, we have a different sort of episode for you. The salmon in the stream are gullible for pink streamers, chartreuse and white deceivers, and the off-malign egg-sucking leech. There are char in these streams, too big silvery Dolly Varden that shadow the pinks, chums, and cohos in from the salt water. This is Dave Zobi reading a segment of his essay, Mosquitoes and Char. To read this story and a whole bunch of other good stuff, head down to your fly shop and grab the latest issue of The Drake. Or if you don't feel like leaving the comfort of your home, go online, drakemag.com, and subscribe. Okay, I'll let Dave Zobi take it from here. Mosquito and char. In my family, we don't bury the dead, and we don't bury the lead. This summer I had a single task, spread my mother's ashes somewhere in Alaska. In May, I set out, two black labs in tow, with the idea of finding the ideal resting spot. I drove the 3,000 miles of the Alcan Highway my mom's ashes bumping along somewhere among the camping gear, bags of dog food, and fly rods. After 30 straight hours, I was pulled over for speeding in Grand Prairie. I explained the mission. The fat-faced officer said he understood. His mom had died recently, too. He pressed the ticket into my hands with something like compassion. I drove up out of the tillable lands into the big northern woods, where agriculture hasn't ravished the landscape. The radio stations that played country pop faded. Chapter 4. 
in the state militia. So I listened to a biography of Hamilton on the CD player. I didn't stop to enjoy the Canadian Rockies. I drove, vaguely aware that this trip wasn't the usual dash up to Alaska to fish every day and drink coffee. And if I did catch fish, some first-run sockeyes or a Chinook, or if I saw a moose and her two calves, who would I call to tell about it now that my mom was gone? Who cares about such things? Only your mother. The rest of the time, you're wasting your breath. I stopped at an empty campground in the Yukon and looked out over a lake full of megansers and their fluffy ducklings. The lily pads were just beginning to spread across the lake's surface. The smell of willows wafted up from the lake shore littered with plastic bags. I found the shattered pieces of a watch in the great glacier Lois. You can drive like mad for three days and you're still not far enough away. I built a fire but wasn't committed to keeping it going. I slept in the back of a truck with a dog on each side, and I thought about those ashes. These days, the far-flung places I like to take people to, the remote outposts and roadside rivers, all have cell phone service. Not on my phone, mind you, but on the latest models. For enough cash, you can catch the emerging grizzly sows over in Katmai and be back to town in time for supper. I have friends who can't be out of touch, CEOs and members of various boards who are needed, wanted somewhere or another in the lower 48. Just this year, I had a friend walk up a bear trail near Halibut Cove so he could send an invoice. We are, after all, talking about serious money. From his view on the bluff, he might have seen the harbor seals or that blue boat we always spot fishing just offshore, or kayakers in their bright wetsuits, but he didn't say. He only said that he had reception up there, three bars. The text went through. Bill Mixer and I aren't so valuable that we need to be in constant touch with civilization. Bill, now retired from a career in higher education, owns a small business that requires little check-in once in a while, but otherwise he is unencumbered. His daughter is in grad school in Denver. His wife, Lisa, goes to the Black Hills with her group of hikers. He is my go-to guy for getting away. It was the end of summer, the last chance we'd have to do an overnight trip before we headed back down the Alcan to our regular lives. I heard the salmon were thick in one of my favorite streams across Kachemak Bay. We found a water taxi service to take us across. Kachemak Bay State Park has a few yurts that are available to the public at only 60 bucks a night. Only one yurt was available. We booked it and started to put our list together. We needed bear spray. We needed bug spray. For food, we wanted to keep it basic. We went to the Safeway and bought two underachieving sandwiches, the type that are more bread than fillings. We picked up some breakfast bars, a plastic tray of dry cookies and double chocolate and oatmeal raisin. Feeling guilty about the cookies, Bill insisted on an offering of apples and oranges. But in Alaska, fruit is expensive and often not worth it. The grapefruit are particularly abused, thick-skinned specimens. I tried to explain, but Bill wouldn't budge. We bought Bic lighters, fire starters for the wood stove at the yurt. 
We bought one bar of 85% dark chocolate and some packets of instant coffee. He wanted a small bottle of brandy and some scotch. It's not that kind of trip, I said. He put the scotch back, but bought brandy. We had all the flies we needed. Decades of fishing had left both of us with boxes and boxes of flies, most of them not practical in the least. The salmon in the stream are gullible for pink streamers, chartreuse and white deceivers, and the off-maline egg-sucking leech. There are char in these streams, too. Big silvery Dolly Varden that shadow the pinks, chums, and cohos in from the salt water. I had a selection of beads that the char would willingly take. I had tippets, BB shot, and strike indicators. I downsized my fly boxes to a few items. And I brought my mom's ashes. All summer, I'd found excuses not to spread them in one river or another, or dump them at sea while out waiting for the halibut bite. Her name was printed on the lid. I never saw myself as someone who couldn't let go. She had died that spring and asked that each of her four children take some of her remains and scatter as we saw fit. A world traveler and voracious reader of John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt biographies, she had all kinds of fantasies about where we might take her. Old Rag in the Allegheny Mountains, Mesa Verde, the windswept dunes near Hatteras Island, Blowing Rock in North Carolina. I think she saw the journey of her ashes as another road trip. Mom, gas is nearly four bucks a gallon. Pick a place close by, I had joked. She loved Alaska and had been there several times. She marveled at the Kenai Peninsula, Denali, and Seward. Any of those would do. A salmon stream in the middle of nowhere is what I settled on. I warned Bill of my intentions. I showed him the box of cremains. I'm not even sure it's legal, I confessed. Who's going to stop us, he said. Bill, never one to be intimidated by rules and regulations, had a duality to him that troubled most people. When I arrived in Wyoming to teach college composition years ago, stories about Bill's scrape with authority were still in the air. One legend goes like this. A landowner near Lusk saw a maroon 2004 Taurus with college plates bouncing over BLM land at unsafe speeds. A rancher reported a man in khaki stepping out of the car stripping naked, then cloaking himself head to toe in camouflage. No one was able to prove that Bill had used the college vehicle to go deer hunting. The car was impeccable upon its return. But there was the enduring scent of deer lure woven into the fabric of the seats, and the alignment was off. Afterwards, Bill kept a steady flow of shade-grown coffee going to the guys in the motor pool. The idea of spreading my mom's ashes enlivened him. He saw it as another adventure. We hauled our gear to the small boat harbor to meet our captain. We bumped over some light chop and after a short boat ride, we stepped off the water taxi and our waders. My two labs needed to be pushed off the boat. There was a bar of mussel and clam shells extending into the bay. The captain used a long pole to hold the boat while we unloaded. Bill and I wore our backpacks and carried our fly rods and cases. The dogs sprinted ashore to flush the glaucous gulls and kittiwakes from their posts along the creek. Salmon exploded when the dogs discovered them resting in pools. The dogs gave chase.
This is going to be a problem, I said. I hurried forward and reprimanded my dogs. We put leashes on them. We put bear bells on their collars. The effect seemed only to intensify their pursuit of fish. Now they sprinted through the shallows, dragging their leashes through the muck, where they stood on the bank, surveying the fish below. My labs worked as a team to pin salmon in the shallows. They nipped at tails, but their efforts didn't produce much. They were panting after 15 minutes of chasing salmon. We unloaded our packs at the yurt. We took the food and liquor to the metal bear box. Above the bear box, perched on a snag, were two juvenile eagles, so thoroughly stuffed with salmon that they couldn't fly. They just looked down at us. They appeared to be suffering from extreme indigestion. Bill put his fly rod together and smoked a cigar. He told me years ago that he enjoys putting his rod together before he fishes and doesn't understand the new craze behind rod lockers for vehicles that allow you to keep your rod assembled. As we walked upstream, we encountered huge numbers of pink salmon clogging the runs. I scouted this stream weeks ago, and it was nearly devoid of salmon, only a few bright chums and a pink or two. But the char we're in, I sightcasted a huge sea-run dollies. I was hoping we could catch a few dollies on this trip, but with so many salmon in the stream, it seemed impossible. I knew the char were present, lurking down there somewhere, but you couldn't see them through all the waves of salmon. There was one outstanding run on this stream where two branches of a creek come together and form a deep emerald pool. There's a small beach where you can cast upstream without losing your fly on the alder and cottonwood branches. Opposite the beach is a steep rock wall. I heard that large char lay against the cut bank. These fish will take a dry fly if you float it along the wall face, I was told. When Bill and I arrived at the pool, we were greeted by an astounding sight the whole body of water writhing with fish. Pink salmon mostly, but a few calico shapes of chum salmon and two sockeyes, buck and hen, that must have taken a wrong turn somewhere. The sockeyes were bright red with greenish heads, Christmas trees they call them. There seemed to be no way to fit another salmon into the pool. Bill, being a globe-trotting angler that he is, devised a method of catching these fish without snagging them. He simply stood upstream and made tight downstream casts along the slug of fish. Eventually, one of the pinks would bolt out of the school and take his egg-sucking leeches. I held both of my dog's collars while Bill fought one fish after another. Just to keep things interesting, I'd pretend to lose hold of my young dog, Henderson. The puppy would dive in just as Bill was landing a fish. It was amusing to see him try to manage the feisty five-pound salmon while the dog darted in to take a nip. Bill cussed and complained mightily. Did you ever take a class on dog management? I asked. I could teach one after dealing with your dogs all these years. After half a dozen fish, Bill sat back and watched the thousands of salmon pulsing upstream. Periodically, large chums cruised by, their jaws already distended and showing rows of teeth. Bill casted these, but got no takers. Instead, he caught pinks in the dorsal fins and had to shake them off while Henderson went berserk in the shallow water. My rod was rigged with a pink streamer, but I didn't cast. I had other things on my mind. Just upstream is an abandoned homesteader's cabin built with local hand-hewn spruce. The metal roof sags with moss. There's a deep pool there, but then the stream breaks into several smaller branches and dissolves into the woods. 
This was the place that I decided to spread my mom's ashes. With my sister, I had written a top-notch, verb-heavy obituary. I'd cried on the phone, cried in public, cried while driving to get groceries. The celebration of life was held back in Newport News, Virginia. It was a rip-roaring event complete with heavy drinking and a 12-minute slideshow of my mother's life that my brother had set to some James Taylor tunes. I felt we had done all the mourning required, and then some. Months blurred by, and I feared I wasn't getting any better. Now all I had to do was take the cremains, twist off the lid, and dump them into the moving water. I didn't imagine it would take long. I asked Bill if he was done fishing. He reeled in and pegged his fly. He told me to take all the time I needed. I told him I never got around to checking whether or not it was legal. I googled it and it's okay, he said. The website said to let your best judgment be your guide. He strolled up into the woods. He pretended to be interested in the old cabin. I'll be right back, I said. Henderson and Rocket came with me to the little island that divides the stream. I opened the lid. I was surprised at the color of the ashes. They were not gray, as I expected. They were sort of blonde, sort of yellow, with crystals and chips. You should pause at these moments to take in the wet leaves of pushki plants, the droop of fireweed, the sound of rushing water over your feet. But I didn't pause. I dumped the ashes on the point of the island at the water's edge. It was raining. Rivulets of rainwater quickly picked up the ashes and ferried them into the stream. A plume of green-colored water streaked around my legs and through the middle of the pool. The blue water became foggy. I saw glimpses of tails, fins, and the occasional sad grin of a chum salmon breaking the surface. The rain fed a steady flow of cremains into the stream. Shapes of fish vanished as the cremains swept downstream. I turned to go find Bill, but then I stopped. The ashes freed from the land, bloomed slowly into the stream. The event continued until the whole pool was a blur of smoky water, a few shapes and shadows of fish emerging here and there. A raven flew over to narrate. The water began to clear, and then it was all over. Bill was smoking a cigar. He had stationed himself on a rise. He said he had watched. It was beautiful, Dave, he said, and put his hand on my shoulder. Well, my mom had a rough life, I said, as I pushed past. I wanted to go downstream and get away from the place. Yeah, but she had you, he said. I moved out. I hit the bear trails, stepping over exposed roots, pushing past the pushki and deadfall. If you're going to cry in front of someone, Bill is a good choice. I looked at the water through the gaps between trees. The ashes flowed in a ghostly shape at about the same pace of two guys walking through the woods. I'm not sure I was such a great son, I told Bill. I remembered all the times when I was short with my mother, when I criticized her, when I was annoyed, 
I remember her haunting the garage sales in Newport News, throwing her purse over her shoulder and marching into the Costco to buy groceries. At the commencement of each peewee football season, she bought my brother and me new mouthpieces, which she would submerge in boiling water to soften the plastic. Then, with the mouthpieces piping hot, she retrieved them from the scalding water and told us to bite down. You can do this. It's best to just get it over with. She sat through one losing season after another. We didn't have much room for extravagances, yet she bought me my first tackle box. Once, we found a ten-point buck mount in the garbage and fished it out. I hung it in the wall over my brother's drum set. She bought me a subscription to Field and Stream, though she never approved of my desire to go hunting. She drove me to college at the end of the summer and picked me up in the spring. I don't remember thanking her for any of these things. When I was 18, I left home and never found a way to get back. I left a lot on the table, I told Bill. The dogs followed as we marched along in the rain. At the rock wall, we stopped again to fish. Bill wanted to try for a chum. He had never caught one. I dug through my fly box just to change the subject. I saw a size 16 Adams with a gray thorax that had dulled with time. I remember buying them by the dozens when I lived in Laramie. We used them up on Rock Creek in the Medicine Bow Forest. The brook trout and rainbows were naive for Adams. I think they mistook them for mosquitoes. Most of my dry flies have been lost on small streams in Wyoming. Some were battered by so many trout teeth that they were retired and the others had been sacrificed on the Henry's Fork one summer when the big whitefish were taking dries and I couldn't stop myself. Only one Adams remained. There it was, pinned to the foam of my fly box with a patina of rust. I hadn't given it much thought since 2002. I tied it on. You can't live on nostalgia alone. Regret is only a regret. Bill would tell you as much if he wasn't busy trying to release a pink salmon before Henderson took a bite. I started to cast the little dry fly out over the thousands of backs of salmon. I wanted only to watch it drift, or I wanted to catch one of those sea-run char, but if I didn't, so what? I floated the fly so close to the rock wall on the opposite side of the stream. The little fly bumped over the salmon, and I thought, just for a second, that something had swirled up from below, something silvery and large something vague. I repeated the cast. Nothing happened. I let the fly bounce off the rock wall. As soon as it hit the surface, a fish rolled on it. I came tight with a large force. The fly line thumped through the hundreds of salmon as my fish ran deep. Bill hooted. The fish was so large that I just knew it had to be a salmon. I was surprised a salmon would hit a tiny dry fly, a mosquito imitation. But salmon are always doing odd things. You hear stories. Talk to the guys in Soldatna and they'll tell you. I figured this was just another yarn of a salmon breaking all the rules. The fish leapt and leapt again, yet it moved like a trout, which is to say it was familiar, athletic, and lithe. There was some serious speed. It shook its head midair. After a long battle, and after my dogs charging several times to intervene, Bill grabbed the fish by the tail. It was a whopper of a sea-run char, with bluish tinfoil skin. I wondered how in the world the fish was able to see my tiny mosquito pattern drifting above. How could it see it through all those salmon? Why was it looking up? And how many miles had that fly travel with me to meet this fish? 
who had also traveled unimaginable distances. Fly fishing, it seems to me, brings together impossible odds. It can force the seemingly unconnected elements of the world together for brief moments. Fly fishing doesn't clear things up, but blurs disconnected elements. To me, it's less religious and more quantum mechanics. The point of my hook was so embedded into the fish's jaw that Bill quickly clipped it off and let the fish go. We didn't take a picture. I didn't want to break its jaw just trying to get that hook out, he said. That fish was too beautiful to hold for long. I didn't have any more size 16 atoms. I didn't even need to look. It was the last atoms I had, a memento of other times, better times. Plus, we had brandy and dark chocolate back at the yurt. We had a wood stove that needed to be lit. The dogs needed to be fed. That fish was the best thing that happened to me in the last two years, I said. Rocket leaned into my legs. He looked up at me. He was hungry and wanted to get out of the rain. The river was running clean and blue. The vague blur of my mom's ashes were somewhere else now. Bill's glasses were fogged up and slightly twisted. We had been in the rain for hours. He wanted to get out of it. He wanted a warm place with some fire. He wanted to celebrate. And so did I. There you have it. Dave Zobie has a new book out called Fish Like You Mean It. Unfortunately, the cover features a dead salmon and a spinning rod. But I promise that inside the pages of that book, there are a bunch of good fly fishing stories. You can find Fish Like You Mean It wherever books are sold. Now, I'm not quite sure when the next episode is coming out, but... You know, steelhead season is approaching, and I might just have to throw something together about my favorite fish. Until then, thanks for listening. This has been The Drake Cast. <laughs>